Spring is in full bloom. Are your finances? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, you can build credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments, all with no annual fees or interest. With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. Members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. Get Wired is a new podcast from Wired, hosted by senior writer Lauren Good about how the future is realized. It's news from tomorrow, today. With new episodes dropping every Monday, Get Wired will set the tech agenda for the week with hard-hitting reporting, intimate storytelling, and fresh perspectives. Listen and subscribe to Get Wired wherever you get your podcasts. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. This is Cleve Lutzen with The Washington Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Nicole Ellis. It's Monday, August 10th. Today, the threat of evictions and power shutoffs loom as emergency aid expires, and what your COVID test results really mean. Okay, so I'm not paying rent. I'm on rent strike, and I have been since April. My name is Vanessa Bullness. I live in Oakland, California. Vanessa was this preschool teacher who hasn't worked since March and hasn't been able to pay her $2,500 a month rent since then. I'm the primary breadwinner for my house. She now owes $10,000 in back rent. I didn't get a response to the strike per se. They just every month sent out a letter or notice or email saying that, you know, the rent is still due. I did get one comment said that it wasn't going away. She really reflects the the greatest concerns of both landlords and lawmakers and housing advocates and economists as well. She's somebody who is going to owe a significant amount of money when the eviction moratoriums eventually end. And there's little prospect of her being able to come up with that money, at least not quickly. I would like cancellation because this is the situation. You know, I have been unemployed. I have been receiving unemployment benefits, but we've you know, saving that. So, you know, there's food, there's PG&E, which is electricity, you know, and other expenses for myself and my husband. And so we hope that they would negotiate, uh, if not cancellation, then half of what we owe. Like, we pay for three months and they dismiss or cancel three months. So this financial cliff is one of the biggest concerns for economists and so many other people about these renters, that even if they're able to stay in their homes for now, next month or next couple of months, they could be faced with a financial disaster of a big back rent payment they can't make and they're going to lose their homes then. My name is Renee Merle. I'm a business reporter for The Washington Post. So we reached out to them and sent a letter asking to, you know, come to the table and see what we can agree on as far as past due rent. I haven't heard anything from them yet. What's the government doing to help these people? Well, there are various government programs. This weekend, President Trump signed an executive order on evictions. 
the executive order basically called on regulators to consider whether an eviction moratorium was needed, whether an eviction moratorium would help stop community spread of the coronavirus. But the executive order itself didn't do much. It didn't actually you know, extend the federal moratorium. It just called for more study for regulators to look at whether there was money to help renters. But the executive order won't actually stop any evictions as of now. But on the state and local level, um, some state authorities and some cities are either extending their moratoriums or setting up, you know, local rental assistance programs. So the kind of help that renters are going to have really depends on where they live. Right. But the executive order, while it does acknowledge that the end of the moratorium is going to create huge problems for renters, it doesn't do anything about it or change the possible outcomes that we're looking at when this moratorium ends. Exactly. (laughs) Unfortunately, the headlines were all like eviction moratorium. But then when you actually read the executive order, all it did was say, HUD, HHS, isn't there a problem here? We should do something. That's all it did. I feel like we hear the word eviction moratorium kind of thrown around. We all kind of go along like we know what it means. But I'm wondering, can you kind of break down what exactly an eviction moratorium is? Well, it's actually a really great thing to explain because this is something almost unprecedented in the country's history. We really have never had this type of moratorium. What it basically means is that the landlord cannot move forward in evicting somebody from their home. That is kind of like a blanket order, either by the federal government, by the state government or a city council, telling a landlord that you have to allow your renters to stay put. The conditions of the eviction moratorium vary on the federal, state, and local level. But it basically means that a renter is allowed to stay in their home even if they haven't paid rent for an extended period. For people who are in states where the moratoriums are ending, what's that, like, what's going to happen to them? There is a real threat that they're going to lose their home. Um, The concerns of tenant advocates and housing advocates is that we're going to see a spike in homelessness. The reason that this is um, such a big deal as well is that renters are more likely to be the people who were directly impacted by the coronavirus. They're more likely to be people of color. They're more likely to be low to mid-income people to work in the service sector or the travel sector. They're just more likely to be the kind of people who were harmed by the pandemic and the shutdown of the economy. So what's the perspective of landlords in all this? Well, a lot of landlords, especially mom and pop landlords who just own one a single family home or just a couple, feel like they're being squeezed by these moratoriums. You know, they're not able to collect rent because of the pandemic, but they're not also not able to evict their renters, their tenants. And so they feel like they're going to be taking a big loss. And while renters right now don't have to pay rent in a lot of places, you know, these landlords say they still have to pay their mortgages. They still have to pay their state and local taxes. They still have expenses for maintaining that property. So a lot of landlords feel like they're being squeezed in all of this. And if there isn't more help from Congress, from the Trump administration, for renters, they feel like it's not just renters who are going to be harmed, but landlords as well. So is there any light at the end of the tunnel? It seems like there's there's a whole lot that we still don't know about what's going to happen in terms of housing all across the United States. I wish I could tell you that I see the path forward, but I really don't. It really depends on 
what Democrats and Republicans on Capitol Hill are able to agree to. Will they extend the moratorium? We're not sure yet. Will they offer more rental assistance? Democrats, for example, want there to be a, a national $100 billion rental assistance fund. Uh, Republicans ha- really haven't signed on to that idea. Unfortunately, right now, renters are sort of still in limbo, and they will be until Congress comes to some conclusion. Renee Merle is a business reporter for The Post. At the beginning of the pandemic, dozens of states put in orders barring utilities from cutting off the electricity to people. And even in states without those sorts of restrictions, a lot of utilities voluntarily said, we're not going to be turning off anyone's power during the pandemic. But now a lot of those governor's orders are starting to expire. And some utilities have started to do shutoffs again for those behind on their bills. A total of 32 states plus the District of Columbia had put in place these legal restrictions at the beginning of the pandemic. But since late May, 10 states have ended those shutoff bans. And another dozen states are set to end them by early September. So the number of Americans that are going to be at risk of shutoff if they're behind on their bills, even though this recession is only getting deeper, is going to grow in the next several weeks. My name is Dino Grandoni, and I'm an energy and environmental reporter here at The Washington Post, and I write our daily energy newsletter called The Energy 202. So what does this actually mean for people at risk of losing their power? Well, the thing is that this has been a problem for many people well before the pandemic. And uh, have you had before the pandemic any issues with I actually talked to this woman in Virginia, Tisha Watkins, who is working right now. She works as a medical assistant for a nursing home. And one time they came to disconnect my stuff and I told them that I could pay it the next day. And the man still turned it off. And then having to pay that bill and the fee for them to reconnect it. I think it's like $25 or $50. She had received a shutoff notice this past March, but was actually saved from having her power shut off due in part to the fact that Virginia and her utility had put in moratoria to prevent people from getting their power shut off as like the pandemic took grip in this country. Are you grateful that they have this moratorium on shutoffs? Yes, it's good, but I'm just thinking like when they do that and when they're done doing that, The people that are like, haven't been able to pay or just pay a little bit, are they going to have to pay that big amount right then or their stuff's going to be turned off or what are they going to do? They haven't even said. Right, right, right. What it means is that as the country continues to sink deeper into a recession, it's just going to get harder for people to keep their lights on. Congress allowed an extra $600 per week in unemployment benefits to expire for 30 million, around 30 million people which is just going to be straining families' finances even more. You know, it looks like we're obviously no closer to a return to normal. And I'm wondering, are lawmakers doing anything to protect people here? Or are governors going to extend some of those orders? So some governors have extended orders, such as uh, North Carolina Governor Roy Cooper. And right now, a bunch of congressional Democrats and advocates for the poor are 
calling on the federal government, calling on Congress, demanding that Congress step in and issue a nationwide ban on shutoffs. They'd been eyeing the upcoming coronavirus stimulus package as the best chance for doing that, but negotiations for that package have broken down and we might not be getting a new bill. So where is the pushback coming from? So the pushback is coming from investor-owned utilities. These are the large corporations that provide power to people. Uh, we've seen a group called the Edison Electric Institute, which represents these companies, write letters to Congress asking for the federal government and for Congress not to intervene, to let the states, to let the utilities handle this. They argue that it's better for them to work with local regulators who they're used to working with to respond to an outbreak that's hitting each state differently. And they are advocating against what they're calling a one-size-fits-all approach. And some Republicans have kind of taken up that call, too, and, and say that it should be up to the states rather than the federal government to determine when utilities should get back to normal. But advocates for the poor are saying that we can't rely on corporations to act just out of the goodness of their hearts to keep people's power on. They are saying that we need legal restrictions on shutting off power and that we need the federal government to do that because the states are slowly rolling back their different moratoria. You know, it's one thing to lose electricity, but when you think about how so much of our lives require utilities, I'm wondering if this applies to other other utilities like water or, you know, you name it, anything else that we use every day. Yeah, these different moratoria that put in place by states also often applied to water and to internet, stopping companies, stopping utilities from shutting off either one of those. The thing is, though, to shut off someone's power also effectively means to evict them from their homes because it's next to impossible to stay in a place if you're not getting those basic necessities, you're not getting that electricity and you're not getting that water. Dino Grandoni covers energy and environmental policy for The Post. And now, one more thing about what your COVID test results actually mean. Since February, the newsrooms received over 10,000 questions from readers about the novel coronavirus and COVID-19 how it's spreading, and how it's impacting everyday lives. One trend in the questions we've been receiving is, what can I do based off of my test results? If I get a viral test or if I get an antibody test, does that mean I can change my behavior day to day, go see more people, go see my friends and family, possibly go on a trip, so I started looking into it. My name is Teddy Aminabar, and I work on the social media team at The Washington Post. So the tests that most Americans are getting right now are these viral swab tests. These swabs are kind of those brain-tickling swabs to the back of your nose, possibly even your throat. So when I talked to experts, what they told me is that a single negative swab test isn't a green light to then visit aging relatives or at-risk family members. 
because unfortunately, with how the virus operates, one test doesn't mean that you're free of the virus. You could become symptomatic a few days afterwards. In a lot of ways, a viral swab test is really similar to a pregnancy test. You can actually take a viral swab test too early. So you might have been infected on day one, and then you get tested on day two. The test might say you're negative, but really it's just that the virus hasn't developed enough in your system for the viral swab test to be able to detect it. What is reliable from my conversation with these experts is if you do test positive after taking a viral swab test, you do in fact have the coronavirus, especially if you're showing symptoms. And when it comes to rapid tests or point of contact tests, there have been some studies, specifically one that came out in May that questioned the accuracy of how accurate these point of contact tests can be when you're speeding up the test results to minutes instead of to hours or days. A serology test, also known as an antibody test, is a test that can tell somebody if they have possibly already been infected with the coronavirus. The test does this by finding whether your body has produced proteins and the antibodies that your body would produce one to three weeks after a coronavirus infection. So if you think about it, an antibody test can tell you whether you've already been sick, which is a question a lot of people have on their minds. Was that really bad flu that I had in the spring actually the coronavirus? And you can see why a lot of people want to have that answer. But there's a couple of caveats here. The first one is there are false positives for these antibody tests, meaning the test can say that you have antibodies for COVID-19 when you may actually just have antibodies for another coronavirus. There are other coronaviruses that just cause the common cold and it can just mix up the two. Also, let's say you test positive for antibodies. Experts can't say if antibodies from a past COVID-19 infection really does provide somebody either immunity or some type of temporary relief from another infection of the virus. Viral swab tests and antibody tests are data points. And we can use those data points along with other tools like wearing masks and social distancing to limit the spread of this virus. But one test is by no means a golden ticket to then determine whether you can proceed with life as normal, unfortunately. Teddy Amenabar works for the Post social media team. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at postreports.com and join the conversation online using the hashtag Post Reports. I'm 
Nicole Ellis. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. You can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade or at least grab an extra latte. After getting a Chime checking account with features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe, no minimum balance requirements, and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at Chime.com goals24. That's Chime.com goals24. Chime. Feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. Members FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply.